There are no borders with Bitcoin, and from the beginning, its disruption has been global. Tune in to Borderless as Coindesk reporters Anna Badikova and Danny Nelson dissect their top most recent Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stories from around the world. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder that Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Anna Baidakova from Moscow, Russia. And I'm Danny Nelson from the United States. On today's show, we have a guest. Uh, we're speaking with Kim Grauer, head of research at Chainalysis, the blockchain analytics company and one of the leading firms in this field. We're going to talk about something Chainalysis has been studying for a long time, the crypto crime and other fun topics of the last week. So we keep inviting amazing guests to this podcast and make sure you haven't missed the one with Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation that we did last week. Alex has a very unique view on the global crypto adoption and he was very frankly sharing his ideas. It's a great food for thought. Please go and check it out. And ironically, Alex is very critical about blockchain analytics services. Today we have the guest exactly from this industry. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So Chainalysis just recently in February released this uh, big comprehensive research on the intersection of cryptocurrency industry and cybercrime. If you guys are curious about, the, about these topics, definitely check it out. It has a ton of very interesting insights, statistics, um, and a bunch of really interesting case studies. Kim, before we talk about what you did in this report, you've been researching the crypto adoption patterns globally for years now. You did a bunch of studies on that. Can you, can you just tell for people who are not familiar with how blockchain analytics actually works and what your research is based on, how do you do that? Like When you analyze all these transactions and where money is coming from, what methods do you use to locate the sources and uh, the destination of those funds on the blockchain? One of the key components of what we do at Chainalysis is we associate addresses with services. So if there's an exchange, let's say you have a Coinbase or a Gemini or a Binance account, you are sending your funds or transacting with, with each of these services, they, they are managing a series of addresses. And our core business model is just to associate addresses with named services. And that's uh, pretty much the heart and soul of our company is figuring out ways to do this, whether it be transacting with directly with these services and then following the money and kind of trying to analyze what the wallet infrastructure looks like. Maybe it's some automatic heuristics that we're running over the entire blockchain that are automatically creating associations between addresses. Uh, maybe it's because we get information from law enforcement or we get information from our customers. There's a whole bunch of different tactics that we use to associate these addresses with named services. We have thousands of services that we track. We're constantly trying to stay on top of new exchanges coming online. As you can imagine, there's a, you know, constantly new exchanges that are, or new services or new trends to be on top of. And so, like I said, the heart and soul of what we're doing is just staying on top of those, of those trends so that we can manage the associations between the addresses and the services. Now, this puts me in a great position. That's not my job to create those associations, although it's, it's fascinating to follow and to see how it's done and just how powerful that can be. 
what I do is I take the activity going to all those different services and I can then just ask basic trend questions. So you can imagine we are following exchanges, peer-to-peer exchanges, merchant service providers, gambling platforms. And then there's also your illicit services, your criminal wallets. You have your darknet marketplaces, ransomware wallets, stolen funds, uh, terrorist financing addresses, all of these different types of services that would fall into the illegal area. And so the crime report focuses on that world. And to some extent, it is actually rather straightforward, just saying, how much money went to these addresses. But then each category, each type of crime, you would need to approach it very differently. So then that's why it's so long. That's why we have a section for each different type of criminal activity because they're all driven by different trends. And so um, I hope that answers your question, but that's kind of the basic kind of platform upon which we build our crime research. Right. So uh, just in, in this crime research, it's very interesting that you're actually breaking these criminal funds flows into in, from which countries they are coming mostly and to which countries they are coming, like what countries receive the most dark market funds. So how can you actually understand that this money coming from a drug marketplace or from a ransomware address goes to this or that country, this or that region? How do you locate that? The main method that we employ was something that we started doing uh, last year for our geography report. We track services and those services have a website. Purchase third-party data, web traffic data, so that we can see that who is the customer base of a lot of these services. And we found out there a lot of the exchanges, for example, maybe it's for language reasons, maybe it's for banking reasons, maybe it's just because there are certain services that happen to be popular in certain pockets of the world tend to serve certain countries. And so we intersected that geography data, that web traffic data with our services to create this estimate of where we think funds are going to. Now, we don't know the intention behind or that where exactly the person is sitting who received funds from a darknet market, but maybe they're using a service that is predominantly serving a customer base in country X. And so we start to build up these assumptions, and, but there are a lot of caveats to, to the geography research. It's really the beginning of us trying to understand global trends throughout the world, but that is the basic assumptions that we're using to draw out some of these country-specific trends. So we did find in the crime report that a major counterparty of darknet marketplaces was exchanges that are predominantly serving Eastern European countries, for example. And that was, I think that's what you're referring to. There's definitely activity all around the world when it comes to looking at the types of exposure that these darknet marketplaces have. And in the last few years of studying uh, crypto crime for these reports, have you and Chainalysis spotted any ways of, uh, that the criminals are evolving in their tactics or in the um, types of criminal activity that they're really using crypto to uh, facilitate? I think the answer to that question is it really depends on the crime type. Kind of similar to the geography report where we were first like, let's figure out how people are using cryptocurrency. You know, let's, there's probably some straightforward answers, right? wrong. Actually, the reasons that we found driving cryptocurrency adoption were extremely dependent upon the 
the country or the region upon which, what is the regulatory environment? How easy is it to access cryptocurrency? A lot of questions that are very specific to the country. So I would use that logic here that each crime type evolves in a different way. Like for example, scamming. 2019 was the biggest year of scamming on record, mostly driven by a major scam called Plus Token. And then this year, we're seeing a major decline in the total amount of funds going to scams. But that isn't necessarily because scamming is trending down. It's because actually there was just a major outlier event in 2019. We're actually seeing a lot of growth of these smaller scams, of these Ponzi schemes. Maybe they're targeting a different region. So the most scamming we saw this year was in actually targeting South Africa and the United States, whereas the year before it was happening largely in in, um, Eastern Asia. And then you can think about ransomware, which was the most significant trend that we noticed this year. We call it the year of the ransomware because there was over 300% increase in ransomware payments made from 2019 to 2020. And this just basically exploded the amount of ransomware payments that we've identified. And we have a few reasons as to why we think that is. It's complicated. I'm happy to go into it as well. But yeah, just the the takeaway is each type of crime that we track is driven by very different trends. Talking about the specific cryptocurrencies, in your report, you talk about different kinds of crimes. It's uh, scams, it's it's ransomware, it's child abuse materials, terrorism financing, and so on. Are the actors in this field still preferring Bitcoin mostly, or they might be drifting towards some other cryptocurrencies, maybe stable coins, because there have been an inflow of liquidity to other cryptocurrencies as well, so they might be used uh, also? Because of the fact that the biggest crime type are things like scamming, scamming is still largely using Bitcoin because if you think about your basic scam, a lot of them are trying to victimize people who might be new to the space, who might think that they can you know, get rich quick. And, and so oh, there's a lot of technologies that make purchasing Bitcoin just really easy. So it is a preferred cryptocurrency as well. But we're seeing more, a few ransomware criminals are specifically saying that they're going to Monero you talked about stable coins. One thing that is something that we talk a little bit about in the report is, but we didn't go into as much detail as I think I would have liked, is the role that stable coins play in you know, money laundering and how that can kind of facilitate some really large money laundering rings. But we do focus mostly on Bitcoin in the report. It's still the preferred option in our assessment. A lot of the uh, clients that you work with are uh, governments. And there's been a lot of tension, at least in the uh, Bitcoin advocacy community over, one, the use of blockchain tracing software at all, and also potentially the types of partnerships that these companies that uh, facilitate the tracing of cryptocurrencies decide to work with. Does Chainalysis have any framework for deciding what types of governments or, or business partners to work with and perhaps not to work with? We definitely do. I think that each contract is, you know, we're very thoughtful about the terms of the contract, and I'm not privy to many of those negotiations. They kind of give me data and tell me to research data. But I, I know that it's a conversation that we are really open about tackling and really wanting to get it right inside Chainalysis. So I don't have right now like the terms of what we'll say yes to and what we'll say no to. 
But I do know that our founders and the people who are managing these accounts are extremely thoughtful in the way that they go about making these really tough decisions. Let's talk about some really amazing insights that you found in this uh, crypto crime report. So it's interesting that you're sorting out these criminal money flows, talking about several countries that are leading in sending and receiving criminal money. For example, Russia is receiving a disproportionately large share of dark market funds. China receives a lot of funds from addresses associated with stolen funds and ransomware. And the United States, I'm quoting here, is slightly overrepresented in funds received from addresses associated with scams and stolen funds. And, and these three countries are leading in your list of countries who send and receive the most of the criminal funds. So I wonder what you make out of it. Why scammers send money to the US might seem counterintuitive. All the ransomware goes to China. Russia receives all the dark market funds. Like, do you have like any theories of why it happens this way? I think that, first of all, these are the top countries, but there's scamming everywhere. There's darknet market activity everywhere. There's ransomware attacks are happening around the world. And you just need to open your you know, browser and search the most, start, type in ransomware, and you'll probably see that within the past hour or so, there's been a report of a ransomware attack. In terms of why scamming is happening in the United States or in North America, especially related to cryptocurrency, you can go to websites like ponzitracker.com and you can see, well, I, I know that that's no kind of hasn't been updated and see that financial crimes are happening using fiat everywhere, largely in, in the United States. There's There are pockets of Ponzi schemes, multi-million dollar Ponzi schemes happening using fiat. Financial crimes are not a new thing and cryptocurrency didn't fundamentally alter the way people want to go to carry out scams. It's just a new vehicle to carry out, you know, these old scams that have been around for a long time. I do think that scamming is, it's not a new thing entirely. There's just the traditional scammers are now using cryptocurrency to take advantage of people. One of the reasons why North America came up so much in scamming specifically was there was one really big scam called Mirror Trading International. And in 2019, it was the biggest scam, actually. And there were pockets of places throughout the United States where there were a ton of victims of this specific scam. It was a major Ponzi scheme. It was also largely in South Africa as well. I can't explain why it hit those two areas. I think that a lot of these scams, a big part of what makes them so successful is the extent to which they're willing to invest in marketing in certain regions. We learned that with Plus Token, where they used a whole lot of money on marketing. They staged a photo app with the royal family in the UK. So there's that component. I don't know where the major hotspots for scams are going to be next year. I think it depends. There's actually not that many huge scams. To some, you can't really predict where they're going to hit next. You can only work to kind of educate people, you know, raise awareness on the fact that maybe someone promising you 500% annual returns is they might not actually be able to effectively get you that. Talking about the ways that scammers and cyber criminals use to liquidate their crypto, I noticed that, and it might seem counterintuitive, among the top destinations the criminal money hit, mixers aren't really 
big on any, on almost any category that you're researching. Criminal money mostly flow to centralized exchanges, not that much hit the mixers, but still mixers have um, kind of this notorious reputation in blockchain analysis. And I know that in transaction tracking tools that, for example, exchanges use, mixers are often labeled as red. So the exchanges often might block money coming from the mixers, even though they are not the main place where criminal money come. I wonder if the approach to mixers have been changing. What do you generally think about these services and what's your take on them? I think that there's an important distinction between how much the volume of money going to exchanges and then trends in some of these smaller technologies. Like mixers are a big part of the problem and we see them come up often in investigations, but mixers, sometimes they, you don't want to send a billion dollars through a mixer. So even though they might come up in some smaller investigations, when we're looking at the volume of money going to off-ramps, it is just biased almost towards the large scams that have to move large amounts of money or the fewer types of criminal activity that are moving so much money. So I can see why you're concluding from the charts that, hey, it seems like this is an exchange problem, but the exchanges are just so much bigger, period, the end. There's so many more exchanges. They're doing so much more volume. Uh, it, any, even if we summed up all of the volume going through mixers, it would just pale in comparison to the volumes that are going to exchanges. So it's a really an issue of scale where it doesn't really make sense to compare the size of the amount of money going to mixers to, to that going to the, some of these exchanges. Now, that being said, like I said, mixers come up often in our investigations and are utilized by different, depending on the investigation, which it has come up with. We see it come up a lot in ransomware. Different ransomware affiliates will be choosing to use ransomware depending on their own preferences of how they move money, but maybe some of them would prefer to just plug into a established money laundering ring that might just be using nested services on exchanges. So, you know, we, we see it all. And then on the topic of publicizing the criminal activity, there is one group at least that that Chainalysis has not been shy about calling out by name, and that's the Lazarus group, the uh, North Korea-linked hacking group. I'm wondering what uh, Chainalysis has come to think of uh, with regards to North Korea. Is this hermit kingdom really a big threat on the uh, illicit crypto stage? That's certainly a topic that we've discussed at length on the podcast. What are your thoughts on that? First of all, it's a group. The state-sponsored, North Korean-sponsored hacking organizations are just groups that we've been following for a really long time and paid a lot of attention to the ways that they change their use of services to move the stolen money. And I have seen attacks with increased frequency and more money going. The KuCoin hack, which we attributed this year as being carried out by uh, states by North Korea, is the third biggest hack of all time. And that's a lot of money to go to this organization. We don't know how it's spent. You can speculate on how it's being used, but it's a lot of money going to this group. And since they've been happening with more frequency, I mean, I would think that you could only assume that it's becoming a, more, a, a bigger part of 
the overall revenue for North Korea. I actually wanted to come back to something that you mentioned and that our audience might not be familiar with. You mentioned the nested services, which is, according to your report, basically OTC brokers that work, um, that have accounts on centralized exchanges and that, you know, work as proxies between criminal actors that need to liquidate their crypto and the exchanges. So the, these actors don't have to have their own accounts. They go through this OTC broker and this OTC broker doesn't have criminal affiliation. So they have no, no trouble using the exchange. But how do you actually figure out that, you know, this criminal money went to a nested service hosted on this exchange, not to directly the exchange? Like, how, how do you come to that conclusion? It's what we do. It's what we're an expert in. It's what we are very effectively able to, to do this. So we will interact with, a, with an exchange. Okay, this has an exchange. This is on our radar. Maybe it's come up in an investigation. It's called like websitex.com. Let's get some information on it. Let's interact with it. Oh, we interact with it and we notice that it's just nested on a service, which means that it's plugging into the liquidity of a service. And so I guess not that complicated, but it can get difficult when it comes to things like shared liquidity and other things that, that might make these attributions tougher. But basically the essence of what we're doing is we're just being, we're just seeing that it's actually when we analyze the address, it is based on an exchange. I'm just trying to understand, like, if the money goes to the wallet of the exchange, how do you figure out what's going on inside? Like, if, if the criminals just have an account on an exchange or they're using a nested service? We can do it not at scale. So we don't know every single deposit address on an exchange is either a person or an OTC or some claiming to be some other service. It's not something that we haven't done this for every single potential nested service. And you bring up a really great point, which is what is the difference sometimes between an OTC and just an unregistered person who is doing lots of trading on a platform? Some of these definitions kind of get a little bit confused. But if we do an investigation and we have a service as our target, we're saying we're going to figure out, this is on our target list, we're going to figure out what's going on with websitex.com. We go through the regular process that we would do for any service. We start transacting with it, one of the great ways of kind of starting out that process. We analyze the wallet infrastructure and we see just through our transactions that this is based on an exchange. And so actually when I'm sending money to what I think is websitex.com, it's actually just pulling into another exchange. And so then you can kind of draw the conclusion that this is probably a, a service that is really just operating out of a main exchange. All right. This is really interesting. And inevitably, I think at least part of your work is based uh, on, on some assumptions. But still, it's very interesting to see, you know, these trends that you're able to, to figure out. So I wish we had like hours and hours more to, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. to discuss that. But let, let's maybe change years uh, and discuss uh, just a couple more topics uh, that happened last week. Uh, Danny, what do we have in store? So just today, actually, there's some news out of Switzerland. The crypto firm Bitcoin Suisse which has been trying to uh, get a banking license out of the regulator called Finma there has failed because, interestingly enough, they did not have strong enough anti-money laundering 
safeguards in place. FINMA was so negative on the application that it actually said in its press release that it had a, uh, a unfavorable prognosis for the application, which basically prompted Bitcoin Suisse to completely pull the plug on its application. And if it ever wants to pursue this again, it's going to have to start from scratch. So I, I, this is more a statement, I think, on Bitcoin Suisse specifically than it is on the Swiss regulators' willingness to hand out uh, Bitcoin banking licenses, because they have certainly uh, allowed other blockchain firms to have a banking license in the past. But I guess, uh, Kim, without knowing anything whatsoever about Bitcoin Suisse's um, case in particular, I was wondering if you had any insights on the um, use of cryptocurrency in money laundering, specifically with regards to you know, corporations that have to deal with uh, government regulators. Well, one of the most exciting things about what we've done and, and seen in this report is that when I read the money laundering section, I say, oh, wow, this is something that's really powerful. This is the money laundering ecosystem. We can see it. We can count it. We can quantify it. And I think that when it comes to regulators who are approaching these really do really tough problems, I, I do think that one of the most important things that is lacking right now is, is compelling data to help people make informed decisions around how they want to go about regulating this technology. And so when it comes to decisions being made about banking applications and regulators not being certain on what the right decision is, I see that as a data problem. And I see that as why education and what we're doing is so important right now so that you can come to the table informed and say, oh, actually, according to this report, there's more actions that you can take in cryptocurrency to fight money laundering than you might have at your disposal when you're thinking about a money laundering using fiat. Just to switch from all the criminal matters to a more peaceful and optimistic stuff and to a totally different continent, our colleague Sandali Handakama just wrote this very interesting story about a startup that helps savings group in Africa and particularly in Nigeria to invest in stable coins and protect against the inflation of their national currencies. It's interesting what's happening in Nigeria and other African countries where many people don't have access to banking services. They just unite into these uh, savings groups and every member put their money in. And then when somebody needs to pay a loan or to buy a car or whatever, they can pull the money out of that group. This is really interesting to watch. Like if this savings group can be in the form of a multi-sig wallet, say, I don't know, like sounds kind of exciting to me. What do you think, Danny? I think that it's just the fact that uh, these groups are able to turn to Bitcoin when they're being shut out of other banking systems really is a testament to uh, the power of stateless money in general. I mean, it's really cool now that they're able to take it up a notch and, and bring these technological features to this system uh, and basically have their savings locked up in a way that they don't have to worry about uh, the government. So um, it's definitely a plus in my book. And to wrap up this week's topics and news, European Union authorities are warning crypto investors again, and the European Securities and Markets Authority just issued a report saying that you can lose all your money investing in crypto. 
So guys, don't lose all your money. Don't fall for crypto scams. Kim, do you have any recommendation for people to stay on the safer side in crypto? To stay on the safer side in crypto? Uh, well, a majority of the activity is, you know, trading activity, people speculating on the price. So I, don't bet, I guess, what you can't afford to lose. That's a great advice. <laughs> That's what I would say. It's a crazy space that, you know, shoots up as fast as it goes down. When it comes to protecting yourself against against criminal activity, I think that it's not that different than kind of the logic you would use when protecting your bank account and the rest of your financial life and, and all those principles, I think, pretty much apply. It's not like a foreign new space with different rules and regulations. Just apply some of those same ways to protect yourself. General cautiousness is, is the receipt. And that was Kim Grauer, the head of research at Chainalysis. You've been listening to Borderless. Thank you for listening, guys. Please subscribe to Coindesk Report feed podcasts. It's been us, Anna Bajdakova from Moscow. And I'm Danny Nelson, right now in Chicago in the United States. Roaming the United States. Yes, roaming. So thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next week. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Anna Badakova and Danny Nelson with an announcement by Lila Ledesma. Today's show is produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcast at coindesk.com. 